Let's pray together. Father, we do approach You by Your Son, Jesus Christ's blood. And it is only by His blood that we are granted access to Your throne. You are a great God, eternal in Your very being. You are the very essence of life and light and truth. There is no God besides You in heaven or earth. Father, we come to You now through the sacrificed blood of Your Son, Jesus Christ, clothed in His righteousness alone. We stand this morning amazed in the presence of our great Savior. And Jesus, we do praise You this morning. But at the same time, we ask that You forgive us because we really aren't amazed. Many of us, God, are distracted. Our treasure is in heaven. It is carried around in our family and our possessions and our status and our job and our symbols and our culture and our religious practice. Our treasure is not in You and You alone. Oh God, strip us away from all these things. Take away every hint of success that is brought on by our own activity and our own abilities. Strip away all of our family. Take away all of our possessions. Leave us begging for bread that we might beg You and You alone for the treasure of heaven and see You and You alone as the treasure of heaven. God, forgive us for stamping You on top of our capitalistic dreams and calling it Christianity. That is not Your eternal plan. That is not your elect people. That is a fraud. And we are guilty. Forgive us. Forgive us that we are so distracted that we might enter into a place freely to worship. And yet there is no worship from our heart, only from our lips. And you are far from us in many ways this morning. But I'm asking you, I'm begging you, as I have already and will again, please, God, meet with us through Your Word. Please, please send Your Spirit in this place in a fresh way. God, if You won't melt the heart of the prideful, He will go down to shame and eternal doom and destruction. Please, God, melt our hearts. Make us contrite. Make us humble. Break us. And glorify Yourself. God, these are deep things that we will look at this morning. Things that even angels dream of. That they even become excited over. Help us to be likewise. Help us to be excited. Show us our salvation and the beauty of it that we might behold You and cry out from our hearts that You are and You alone are the Savior of the world. We love You. We praise You. We pray, God, 
meet with us. Amen. In John 6, 36-37, Paul read the paragraph for us in this message. I just want to focus in on two short sentences. Because really, you can't do these two short sentences justice in a series of sermons, a year of sermons, and a lifetime of sermons. Jesus says in John 6.36, if you'll look at that passage, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I want to bring you a message that I've entitled, The Irresistible Gift of the Father. All that the Father has given me will come to me. That's the gift to Christ. We often talk about irresistible gifts to us. We'll talk about that later in this paragraph and how His grace is irresistible. But I want to tell you, that the gift of the bride to Jesus was irresistible to Jesus. He could not turn it down. He had to have it. So much so that He went to the Garden of Gethsemane, bowed down and prayed and wept. The Bible in Mark paints the picture in Mark uh, uh, that Jesus was continually being thrown down, cast down in that prayer time. We get this picture of a serene... Jesus, focused, solemn, quiet, still, murmuring a prayer, inaudible to the others around Him, but audible to the Father. And peaceful. And just kind of there, you know? Isn't that the picture of the Garden of Gethsemane painted in all the pictures? In the children's Bible? That's not the Garden of Gethsemane our Lord suffered through. Mark tells us, eyewitness account was given to Him by Peter, I believe, that Jesus was cast down in sorrow. That He was continually falling. The, the, the Greek translation, the Greek words translated for us in English aren't translated real well. He didn't just fall down and pray. He continually fell down praying. It's as if He, it's as if he was staggered by the weight of what He faced. The cross. The wrath of His Father. The sin of all of His sheep heaped on Him in one moment. The wrath of the Father, the eternal wrath of God poured out on Him in a moment in His flesh. And it broke Him. It broke Him to the point that He bled through His pores in His skin. He sweat blood. It's a condition, a medical condition that's caused by extreme weakness, stress, And fatigue. Jesus was broken in the Garden of Gethsemane over what He was facing as a man, the God-man. Nevertheless, He was a man. The pain He would endure spiritually and physically, He was broken. Crushed, Isaiah says. Crushed under the weight of His Father despised and rejected by His people. And you say, why? What drove Him? And I would say, 
Partly it was the irresistible gift he had been given by his father. What gift? His bride. Primarily driven to the cross, yes, to please his father. To satisfy the wrath of God. But no less important, he was put on that cross and put himself there for a gift that couldn't be purchased any other way. But I tell you, you've seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And all who come to me, I will by no means cast them out. Irresistible. Jesus couldn't help but pay the price to bring the bride to Him. It was an eternal decree. It was done in eternity past. It was written down in this decree, this covenant that we spoke of this morning in confession. You might have said, well, we need to talk about that covenant. We're going to talk about it today. The underlying foundation of that covenant is between, that was between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity past. The underlying groundwork for that covenant is grace. God's grace. God graciously decided to create man in such a state that he would fall. You understand that, don't you? He did not create people expecting them to be perfect. He created them so that they would fall, so that He would redeem them, so that He would give His Son an irresistible gift. All of that is grace. Angels beg and plead God for the opportunity to understand what we experience daily and take for granted. Angels in heaven sit before the throne of God, literally on the edge of heaven, looking at the church, saying, oh, if I could only taste what they have one time. And they can't. And they never will. For all of eternity, understand completely, personally, the gift of salvation. They don't know what it's like. They've never fallen and been saved. Man is peculiar in the creation of God, in the fact that in the past, eternity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit said, we will create man in such a way that he will fall and we will save him. Through your blood, son, we will save him. Through your crushed nature, we will save him. We're going to give them your righteousness. And we're going to give you their sin. And they'll stand redeemed for all of eternity. And that proposition, that decree, was irresistible to the Son. He gladly came to do the will of His Father. God didn't have to beg Him to step down off the throne. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, He stepped down. He didn't covet the, the, the equality with God. And in that, what I mean is, He didn't grasp tightly to being invisible in the Shekinah glory of God. He didn't grasp that position so that He wouldn't come here, humble Himself, be a man and die the death on a cross. You understand, He gave up something so you might experience what He once had unbroken fellowship with the Father. He gave it up. We often think like Jesus, well, Jesus knew He was going to die and then He was going to be raised from the dead and He was going to go back to heaven. What do you really give up? 33 years he walked the ground of this earth with sinners. 
rejected, despised, hated. And one, one part of what drove him, I want to talk to you today about, is the irresistible gift of the believers. Oh, at any moment he could have said this, I'm, I want to go home. He could have called the angels out of heaven, the Bible tells us, when he was on the cross, and they would have come and took him. When he was being tempted and drug out through the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water, and Satan himself showed up, he could have taken the kingdoms of this world that Satan offered and given up the bride. But he wouldn't do it. Because he loved us. You talk about love. Jesus showed love. We talk about it frivolously, this love thing. And God showed it to us. How, you might say? Well, from a father's standpoint, He showed love because He planned the sacrifice of His Son, His one and only Son. He's a father, and He planned the death of His Son. Think about that if you're a father. If somebody came to you right now and said, your child is going to die tomorrow, what would your response be? It's really not that far-reaching of a question. I've wrestled with it. i tell you what my response was. Take me. Don't take my child. That wasn't the response of the father. He planned the death of His Son. And then the Son knows the excruciating separation He will experience in spirit from His Father because of the sin that will be heaped on Him. And yet He gives up Shekinah glory, the invisible nature and light of God to come here. And the Spirit, we often leave Him out of this equation The Spirit would be assigned the task of sealing these believers and then encouraging them and convicting them of their sin. An endless task. He's at work all the time. And it would seem to me, if I was God, it would have been a lot better for me had I just said, I'm perfectly satisfied here now. I have my son and my spirit and the son is to have my father and the spirit and the spirit is to have the father and the son. What do we need? We don't need anything. We're satisfied. We're complete. We have no need. Why create all of this? It was irresistible. Because he's God. Because he desired to share all of himself with his sheep. That ought to amaze you. That ought to set you back on your heels a little bit. You ought to be staggered like Christ was over your salvation. It's sinful that we're not. It's sinful. That the God of the eternal nature, the eternal God of the universe would choose, would irresistibly choose to be your God and have relationship with you, a sinner. And the cost of that for him would be the death of his son or separation from his father. 
That ought to cause a man to be amazed. And the fact that it's not amazing to us just speaks to our absolute depravity and how little we really understand about God or ourself. I'm well aware we have lost people here today. Some are lost and know it. Some are lost and don't know it yet. I pray at the end of this message you will know it. And that God is willing for you to be saved. That's my prayer for you. And if you're saved and you're hearing this message, my full intention is to move your heart and mind to a state of amazement. And you might leave this place fixed on the treasure of heaven, Jesus Christ. In this first verse in our passage here in verse 36, it's very clear that in our, in our natural state, we are totally depraved. But you have seen me. But I say to you, you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the crowd who has seen him feed about 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He's speaking to a crowd who saw a storm come up out of nowhere, a man get across the sea, and nobody knows how he got there except the 12 disciples who saw him walking on water. It's these people, Jesus says, you have seen me, yet you do not believe. Doesn't that speak to you of how fallen we really are? We are depraved. When I use the word depraved, that's a kind of old word. I know we don't use that a lot. But just think with me about it. That word simply means not that you are as bad as you possibly could imagine being, but that you are absolutely and completely unable to do anything to be in relationship with God. You have no hope in your natural state. You're here, lost person, by the grace of God. You woke up this morning breathing, heart beating, mind functioning with a family and an ability, a car or some way to get to this place. Even if it was your own two feet pedaling a bicycle. You had the ability to get to this place. That is a gift of God. And you do not realize it, but you stand over the depth of eternity And the only thing that separates you from immediate and absolute judgment is the grace of God. That's it. And if He withdraws that grace in the moments that I'm preaching this sermon, if He pulls back your life to Himself, you will die and you will go to an eternal place of punishment known as hell or Gehenna. The place where the fire burns and the worm never dies. That's the plight of all fallen people. And what can you do to help yourself? Absolutely nothing. You are who you are. You are a fallen, sinful, willful, prideful human being. And you say, boy, he's picking on these lost people. But I want to tell you, the natural man inside of you, Christian, is the same way. And but for the grace of God, there you go to hell. You woke up this morning under the same common grace extended to you by the cross of Jesus Christ, breathing, 
heart-beating, mind-functioning, and you came to this place taking for granted the very salvation that placed you here. Heart unmoved for weeks at, at a time. No emotional affection, heart affection for a Savior that has given so much. It's just a routine I'm going through. And God graciously says, I'll allow him to live. I know he doesn't love me as he should. I know he takes for granted his salvation. I know he doesn't even think about the fact that at this very moment, the only thing that separates him from the guy in the third world country that's never heard the gospel is my free grace. I know he doesn't take that. He takes that lightly and for granted, but I'll suffer him a little longer because I'm long patient and I'm suffering. We are depraved. Absolutely depraved. You've seen me, yet you do not believe. Look in verse 44. We're not preaching 44 today, but I can't resist. This is a message, by the way, Jesus is preaching in response to some questions the, the crowd had for Him. And I'll tell you this, I'm fully convinced some of you will leave this church during this message series. You'll be gone. Why am I fully convinced? Because at the end of His message, people left too. They said these things are hard. We don't want to hear them. And Jesus looked at His disciples and said, you want to go too? To which Peter pridefully says, where would we go? We've come to understand that you have the words of life. And Jesus said, hold on, partner. I chose you. All 12 of you. And before you get prideful about it, one of you is a devil. So don't get so haughty in your salvation that you think you're invincible. Or that in some way you've merited my love. Because I love Judas just like I love you. And he is a devil. I chose him just like I chose you. The pride level just drops. When you come in the presence of Christ, how do you come? We're going to get to that question in this series. And I'm telling you, some people are going to leave this church. Some of you are visiting, some of you are members, and you're going to just say, I can't, I can't tolerate that. I'm not going to try to make you leave. I don't want you to leave. I want you to stay. I want you to believe. But I have no illusion that I'm a better teacher than Christ is. And if the response to his message was that, I would expect the same out of my audience too. Now, I pray that God grows this church during this series. Because that would speak to me that this community is experiencing some type of revival. I've been here six years. There's been no revival in this place. I pray every day for it, but it hasn't happened yet. And maybe God would be so pleased as to grant repentance to a few hundred or a thousand maybe during the preaching of these messages. And that He would spark affection from you in your heart towards Christ so that your bones would burn and you could not shut the message up anymore of the gospel.
And so that when you went to your table or your place of work or to your place of recreation, all you could speak about is the treasure of heaven. That's what I hope happens. I believe it can happen. Pray with me that it will happen. But I'm telling you, people are depraved. The natural man cannot believe in Christ. You've seen me, yet you do not believe. Look in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him. That's what the first part of the verse says. Now, I know some of you are saying, that's not the God I serve. That's not the God I believe in. That's not the God they told me about in little little kid Sunday school class. I, I really don't know that God. All I know is the God that revealed himself through the written word and the flesh of his son. And that God said, no one can come to me. No one, zero can come to me unless my father draws him. And the most amazing part of that verse is the next phrase. Look at 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Do you see the definite nature of that statement? Look at the definite nature of the next phrase. And I will raise him up on the last day. It doesn't sound like God draws everybody and some people get saved. It looks like the ones that God draws are saved. Isn't that what Jesus just said? No one can come to me. In verse 36, he said, I've shown you my nature. I've made food for you out of nothing. I've walked on the water. I've preached the good news to you. And you do not believe. You do not believe. That's what he said in 36. Followed in 44 with, you know why you can't believe or why you won't believe or why you don't believe? Because my Father's not drawing you. And that's the same reason they left at the end of the message disgruntled and angry and too hard to believe. God wasn't drawing you. He said, well, that's not fair. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. Does not. Do you, those kind of words kind of plain. They're plain. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. He does not receive them. So if you're here and you're lost and you say, what do I do? You don't do anything. You can't do anything. You are totally and absolutely separated from God because of your nature. Not because of an act that you did one time. Not because you lied to your mama when you were a little child. Because you were born, David says in Psalm 51, in iniquity and sin. You were born that way. From my mother's breast, you were my God. And yet, that same David said, from that same place, I was a sinner. See, the the, the American church has thrived secularly in the last hundred years off a man-centered gospel. And I'm convinced that the day of that thriving is coming to a quick and utter end. Because I think we're headed the same place Europe is in right now. Total and absolute secularism. And in that day, the true believers will stand out like lights set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Thank God for that day. I pray it hurries here. Because at that point, there'll be no confusing a lost man and a saved man. 
And we'll know exactly who the Father's drawing and who He's not. Natural man is depraved. He's fallen. He is unable to help himself. The natural man has no taste for spiritual truth. That's another way to say the same thing. I'm just trying to help you understand. Now, I can give you worldly examples. They're not complete. But let me just try to give you this example. I've used it before. or Maybe you've heard it. It's very simple. All you ice cream lovers will appreciate this very immensely. Especially Baskin-Robbins lovers. There were 31 flavors of Baskin-Robbins when it used to be in business around here. It's not in business anymore. Apparently, 31 flavors weren't good enough. There was one that was good, though. Very, very strawberry. From the time I ate ice cream, there was only one ice cream of those 31 that I ever wanted. Very, very strawberry. The person selling the stuff always wanted me to try the newest and best, you know. Try this chocolate peanut butter. Try this pralines and cream. Try this mint chocolate. Try this rainbow. Try this and that. I'm a connoisseur of Baskin-Robbins ice cream, obviously. And I'd get a little spoonful of it, like this big, put it in my mouth, and before I even got it melted, I would say, very, very strawberry, two scoops on a sugar cone, please. I don't want that other stuff. I have no taste for that other stuff. Now, what I'm trying to explain to you about not believing and your inability to do anything is you have no taste for the Son of God. You have no taste for the saving grace of our God. You talk a lot, maybe, about wanting to be a good person, but you don't want the one flavor that matters, and His name is Jesus Christ. And when somebody offers you a spoonful of Him, you put Him in your mouth, and before you've even got Him melted good in there, you're saying, I'll take what I had yesterday. You have no taste for it. People can offer you all the other stuff included with the gospel that they want and you'll never ingest it. You'll always want what you have because you view that as the best. Maybe this is better. One more example. From the animal kingdom, you could turn a lion loose in a field of wheat or barley or oats Make it 100% pure, unadulterated. He won't touch it. And it doesn't matter if you put Mr. Lion in a cage and you tell him about the fine nature of the wheat and the barley and the oats. And it doesn't matter if you tell him how good it is for his heart and he'll live longer. He wants one thing. And that one thing is red meat and he wants it in large supplies. He has a taste for meat. Vice versa, you can turn a cow loose with a bunch of steaks laying around. He sees it as his kinfolk, not food. He wants the barley, the wheat, and the oats. Why? Because that's how God made him. He has a taste for wheat and barley and oats. And he'll eat so much of that stuff, he'll founder and die before you get him away from it. If he's a horse, he'll eat it till he gets sick and dies. Now, what am I trying to tell you? Lost man, it's this simple. Though you may be offered a spoonful here or there of Jesus, your response to that is, ah, it doesn't taste that good. I'll take that other thing. Money, riches, wealth, a good name, a good reputation, a family. We can include good things in here, church. I'll take it. Sounds good. 
Just don't give me that gospel stuff. That's not what I want. Why? Because it's nature. It's who you are. You have seen me, but you do not believe. No one comes to me lest the Father who sent me draws him. No one. The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God because he has no taste for them. He is totally fallen. Finally, I would say about this point, the natural man is responsible for everything that he doesn't believe. He's responsible for it, though he has no taste for it. Hold your place here and turn to Romans. The great case of Paul explaining salvation. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 are where I want to focus. Now, I want to make this as clear as possible. Paul says, No one, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. That means no one has the mental ability to understand the things of God. No one seeks for God. That means he has no desire. He has no taste. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one speaks to the will of the man. He could choose to do right, but he never does. He chooses to do sinful things. He could choose. Physically, he can hear the gospel, see it in the lives of other people. He could, if that was all it was, was physical things, he could do it. But he can't do it. A friend of mine uh, actually talked to him on the phone Friday. He's famous. Some of you know this man. He's, he's famous. I think he ripped it off an old preacher. but So I'm not going to name him. But his famous statement about this was, you may, but you cannot. You have permission to seek God. You may do it. You have no ability to do it. You can't mentally understand it. Mentally, spiritually mentally, I'm speaking now. You don't willfully choose it. And your affections are not for it. You hate the gospel. You may. The door's open. You just don't want to go in. You might say, doesn't the Bible teach that everyone who will may come and be saved? And I would say, yes. Absolutely it says all who will may and can be saved and will be saved, I would say. There's a key part of the dis- where the disagreement comes. It's not about whether everybody who wills can be saved. Everybody who has a desire to be saved can be saved, in other words. That's not where the question comes in. The question is, who are these individuals who will to be saved, who desire to be saved? And I say with the Scripture, by the way, Paul, Jesus, Paul, and we can go back to the Old Testament, but we'll just say Jesus, Paul, Peter, all the James, all the great writers in the New Testament said it. The early church fathers agreed with them. And then the church fell on this dark age of man-centered church, which is what we're in right now, by the way. Last one lasted over a thousand years. And thank God for the gifts to the church. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Eurek Zwingli, John Knox in Scotland, Bishop Ridley in the Church of England, 
Thank God for these men. Jonathan Edwards in the United States and George Whitfield. Men from every stripe and kind under the sun. And yet, they agreed on one thing, and that is, salvation is a gift of God to mankind. Mankind has no ability to help himself. He is totally depraved. Unless God draws him, he will go down to eternal destruction. And if God draws him, he will be saved. They all agreed on it. All the men I've named you, including Christ, agree on that point. Though some of them disagree in their doctrine on church and dispensation and end times and all these things, which I would say shows us the strength of this argument, that all of the men, though they disagree on other things, would come together on this one thing. In our modern day, there's a movement called Together for the Gospel. Men from the Baptist, Presbyterian, non-denominational, and even charismatic church have joined together over one issue, and that is that salvation is 100% of God to fallen man who without that gift would be damned and eternally destroyed. The question is not, can somebody who wants to be saved be saved? The question is, who wants to be saved? And the answer is Jesus' answer. No one comes to me lest the Father who sent me draws him. You've seen me, but you do not believe. All who come to me I will never cast out. That's his answer. That's his answer. The free election of some displays the depth of God's grace. All of mankind is in the hand of God. We've talked about that. All of us receive common grace. Your heart is beating at this moment. Do you realize God can stop that? Now He can stop it. Now He can stop it. It's common grace that keeps you alive. It's grace that saves you. All of mankind is in God's hand. God elected some of mankind as a gift to Jesus Christ, His Son. And that's clearly taught to us in Ephesians chapter 1. We can't deny the very logic and language that's given to us in the Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says, "...even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ." So, it's very clear. All of mankind is in the hand of God. God has elected some as a gift to the Son. John writes about it. John uh, writes about Jesus' prayer where Jesus actually prays these words. John 17, verse 2. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. He's speaking of His office of the Savior You've given me power over all of mankind to give life to all you've given me. That's Jesus speaking. If you go down to verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Speaking to the Father, you gave me these people. Father, you gave them to me. Verse 9, in that same prayer, he continues on to say, I'm praying for them I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All are mine, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. That's Jesus' high priestly prayer the night of His death. is I'm not praying for everybody in the world. 
I'm praying for those you've given me out of the world. That's who I'm praying for. That's who I'm going to the cross for. That's who I will die for. And it just goes right down the line with John 6, 36 and 37. You have seen me, but yet you do not believe. It's just a statement about the depravity, the fallen nature, the utter hopelessness of mankind. In verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. Now I want to tighten the rein a little and show you exactly where this electing grace occurs. Because you might still be misunderstanding this point, and it's very clear in our text. So hold there in John 6. I want you to stay there now. Look at this. In verse 37 of chapter 6, we see that God's electing grace is carried out in time, in real time. All that the Father gives me, you see, gives, as a present tense verb, gives. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's future. You see that? Present and future. It's a shift of verbs, tenses. is very important. Because if you look down in your passage to verse 39, and this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me. You see that? The will of the Father, present tense, is that I shall not lose any of the ones He's given me in the past. So in this paragraph, Jesus says salvation is past, present, and future. The Father has given me a gift, an irresistible gift, the bride. He is giving me the bride right now in time. People are coming and being saved. And the people will continue to come. The tense goes to future. Past, present, future. When was salvation began? Before the foundation of the world, Paul says. All the Father gives. All the Father gives will come. Nobody will be left out. It will be a complete and perfect bride. For you to say that one of God's elect would die without salvation is to say that a man's bride should have no nose, should have no finger, should have no toe. A perfect bride has all her parts. And Jesus' bride is perfect. And it was put together and formed in eternity past. The offer of salvation is made without distinction in the Scripture. And that's very clear. That's not the point that anyone brings up. Or should debate. I believe and everyone should believe that God offers salvation to the whole world. And it's to be preached to the whole world. The question is, who responds? And the answer is clear, I believe. In our passage today, it will be clear as we go. All that the Father has given to me, come to me. And I will not cast them out. Or in verse 44, he says, on the last day I'll raise them up. Salvation for all of His bride was His irresistible gift. So that's the reason we preach. Because you might say, well, if God's already done it, why do you preach? Because He not only has said, this is who I will save, this is how I will save them. Through the foolishness of preaching, I will save those who I love. It's an amazing truth. There's nothing left for you to do. There's nothing left for you to do The response of the saved man to this message should be very clear. 
total and absolute amazement. You say, well, won't you be prideful because you believe God chose you? No. My experience and the experience of millions of others has been not pride, but absolute and complete and utter. I don't know why He would choose a fool like me, a sinner like me, to be a part of this gracious gift. The response of the saved person to this should be amazement, the shattering of pride, the absolute falling down. I just cannot help but love my Savior. Kind of love and affection. For the lost man, what is the response? You may be there saying, well, what if he didn't choose me? That's not of your concern. It's not of your concern. It's not of my concern. That's God's business. No one knows that. The only thing left is to believe in Christ. Say, well, He might not want me to be saved. That's foolish talk. He has said, whoever comes to me, I will not cast him out. Take him at his word. Come to him, not offering to do something for him, but come to him saying, you've done it all for me. Oh, God, save me through Your Son. And I believe that if that is done today by any person in this congregation, God will automatically and completely save you, justify you, and begin to sanctify you so that in the end He glorifies you in His presence. Lost man, there's nothing you can do. He has done it all. Will you not believe in Him? Will you not accept that God has saved you through His Son, Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we know that this...